I'm Michael Pauley, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, I hope everyone is doing well. We're recording the show today in Rapid City, but aided as always by the awesome Casey Bassett, who is in the studio at the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Uh, We're having a picture perfect spring day here in the Black Hills, other than uh, the usual wind that comes this time of year. Um, And uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like I deserve some sunny weather after a winter that stayed around longer than is generally considered polite. We've got a great program in store for you today. Several weeks ago, I shared that we're going to do a series of podcasts where we focus on issues that uh, were before the South Dakota legislature during the 2023 legislative legislative session. Um, And in addition to just kind of doing a recap on these things, it also helps us look forward to what we may expect to see uh, in 2024. But there's way too many bills. Uh, There were over 500 bills uh, introduced in this session. So way too many to try to uh, debrief on all of them in one episode. So I've kind of been grouping them by topic. Uh, Several weeks ago, we did an episode that focused on all of the marijuana-related bills during the session. And we had as our special guest for that program, uh, Jim Kenyon, the chairman of Protecting South Dakota Kids. In today's episode, I thought we'd focus on several bills, five to be exact, that all sought to regulate obscenity in different ways. And at the South Dakota Catholic Conference, we took a keen interest in all these bills because our church has something to say on this issue. Uh, In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we read in paragraph 2210 that, quote, civil authority should consider it a grave duty to acknowledge the true nature of marriage and the family, to protect and foster them, and to safeguard public morality. Uh, And if we go on to the next paragraph, uh, 2211, the Catechism highlights a number of responsibilities for the political community, and one of these is, quote, the protection of security and health, especially with respect to dangers like drugs, pornography, alcoholism, etc. So when we're talking about obscenity, pornography, and all the other things that I guess you could say contribute to the coarsening of our culture, um, I would say, yeah, the Catholic Church definitely has a dog in this fight. Um, In St. Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4, we read this exhortation. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I love that passage from St. Paul. And and when I think about the growing prevalence of obscenity in our culture today, it strikes me that it's like the polar opposite of what St. Paul is telling us in Philippians 4. If a huge swath of our society is focused on what is false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, unlovely, and selfish, uh, then I think we kid ourselves if we think this kind of sickness won't affect our own ability 
uh, to flourish in this society. So with those opening thoughts, uh, let's dive into this whole subject of obscenity legislation. We have a terrific guest joining us today to help us unpack it all. Norman Woods is the executive director of the South Dakota Family Heritage Alliance. And I know many of our listeners are probably familiar with the Family Heritage Alliance, but if you're not, this is a public policy ministry that focuses on passing pro-family legislation. And we at the South Dakota Catholic Conference often find ourselves collaborating very closely with Norman and his team. So Norman, thank you for taking time to join us today. Hey, thanks for having me back on, Michael. It's great to join awesome. you guys. Great. Well, uh, let's let's dive right into what happened uh, during the 2023 session. So, um, you know, being a longtime uh, political warrior, Norman, you've no doubt heard that old cliche that uh, the optimist sees the glass as half full, the pessimist sees it as half empty. And so, you know, on a positive note, the fact that we had five bills in this legislative session that focused on regulating obscenity it kind of shows that there's some pushback from citizens who are growing tired of sort of the depravity in our public institutions and legislators are responding to that. But on the other hand, of those five bills, four of them were didn't even make it out of their first committee hearing um, and not one of them actually made it to the governor's desk. So I guess just to sort of start us off, what's your take on obscenity as a political issue in South Dakota? Do you feel like we're gaining traction, losing traction, kind of treading water or somewhere in between that? Sure. So I think if we take your your glass analogy, is it half full or is it half empty? I think the, the more helpful question is after a legislative session, is there more water in the glass or less? <laughs> yes. I think the best way to look at it. You know, someone challenged me a while back that whenever you're putting any sort of effort forward, if there's a possibility of failure, which there usually is, make sure that you fail forward. Yes. Meaning, if you don't reach your goal, did you at least make progress towards it? Or did you make things worse than even when you started? And yeah. I think if we look at the whole the whole slew of bills that we saw this year on the, the icky topics, obscenity, pornography, explicit materials, I think we failed forward with all the different pieces of legislation. I have people telling me that, hey, my local school board or school group or public library, they're talking to me now. Or you see the Board of Regents has said that they want to take more action on you know, making sure that minors aren't attending. So I think if you look at the whole issue, I think we failed forward this year. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, I, I guess if I can just use myself as a focus group of, of one person, um, I know I'm far more motivated now on this issue just based upon what I saw happen during the 2023 session. You know, like one bill in particular that we'll talk about here momentarily that um, I thought for sure was going to just fly through the legislature. And then when you see a bill like that blocked by some very clever maneuvering by special interest groups, which we'll get into that, um, you know that that kind of thing doesn't discourage me it 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 really motivates me it makes me feel like you know we need to come back and uh and and push on this again so yeah let's just dive into um you know what i think um 
you know, all these bills are interesting, but the one that um, made it the farthest along in the process, and this was one that the South Dakota Catholic Conference uh, and your organization uh, both formally endorsed, and that's House Bill 1116 uh, introduced by Representative Chris Carr. Can you share with our listeners the basic uh, gist of this bill and what it uh, proposed to do? Yeah. So House Bill 1116 was in response to what we all saw at Brookings last year. We saw a state-funded location hosting an event that was mildly or even severely inappropriate and inviting kids to attend. You know, as Representative Carr said in committee a couple different times, the phrase drag queen, red money, should never be said in the same sentence. And it shouldn't be done with taxpayer funding either. So what House Bill 1116 did was two very small things. First of all, it said if there's something that qualifies as obscene using the Miller standard, which we can get into here in a little bit, it's a really high bar. If something is obscene, it's not just maybe a little bit inappropriate, it's obscene. If something qualifies as that, no state resources will be used, state location, state funding, et cetera. The second piece was that it clarified that the Board of Regents and the individual institutions have the ability to regulate which events are appropriate for minors and which aren't. Because what we saw during the Brookings debacle, I guess we could call it, is the institution, the Board of Regents, they were saying, hey, we're not actually sure if the law gives us the ability to tell this group, you are not allowed to advertise this for kids. We don't actually know if we have the statutory authority to tell them that. So that was the second piece that the bill did, it was very clearly state, these institutions, the Board of Regents, Board of Technical Education, they do have the ability to say which events are and aren't kid-friendly. Yeah. Well, and when I first saw this bill and, and read through it, my first reaction was is that this bill seems like the proverbial no-brainer. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to use state resources for uh, promoting or hosting any content that is obscene. And I thought, apparently naively, that in a state like South Dakota, um, this should just fly through the legislature and make it to the governor's desk. But that didn't exactly happen. So can you kind of share what happened to uh, HB 1116? Yeah. So it started to happen just like you and I both expected came out of the house, I believe it was 60 to 10, huge momentum. Most of the house saw this as like an easy no brainer. Yeah. If it's obscene, state dollars aren't going towards it and it's not going to be on a state campus. Yeah. If it's on a college campus, sure. The college can say whether or not it's kid friendly, 60 to 10 flies out of the house, goes to the Senate side where it went to a committee of seven. And at the end of the day, it was four no's and three yeses or five, two. Um, so basically a few senators just basically decided that it's not needed. And yeah. what we saw in the committee was honestly kind of puzzling because we saw a bunch of people that hadn't really spoken up before now make their voice heard. For example, people like the public schools came up and said, hey, we're really worried that if this bill passes, our drama club might be breaking the law. I'm sorry, your drama club has never done anything obscene, I am sure. And none of your kids would ever be interested in doing something obscene. I am very sure. Again, yeah. the bar was so high. Yeah. Miller's standard, it's so high. That yeah. Your drama club, your debate club would never even get anywhere close to it. Yeah. Have you heard of a 
different voices basically throwing out all these questions about, hey, we're really worried. Hey, this could affect us. Hey, don't include us in here. And they were basically able to just muddy the water enough yeah. to where a simple bill suddenly looked very complicated and risky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, yeah, let's dive into that a little bit because you, you, you're, you're absolutely right. Is that, uh, I, I sat through all these same legislative hearings that you did and you, you heard this constant refrain. Um, I, I, for example, a rep, the lobbyist from the American civil liberties union talked about how this bill would have a chilling effect on free speech and educational settings because schools would, um, Oh, you know, like the art, uh, class teacher would be afraid to show a picture of uh, Michelangelo's David, you know, because, oh, there's there's nudity and this is going to run afoul of the law. And, you know, if if for people who actually understand obscenity law, the, the disingenuousness of that argument, you know, becomes so clear. But I think for many people in the public, they, they don't really understand it. So uh, let's just tackle this head on. Is it a violation of the First Amendment uh, for the government to regulate obscenity? Not at all. Yeah. And and so talk a little bit, if you could, about how the Supreme Court, um, I mean, there have been a number of cases where the Supreme Court has grappled with this issue, but the uh, kind of the hallmark case is this uh, um, Miller case. Can you kind of just explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the Miller test, as it's been come to known, be known, is basically a three-part test. First of all, it has to appeal to the prurient interest, which is a fancy legal way of saying like it has to be very obviously tailored towards somebody's sexual interest, sexual excitement, etc. So it's right. got to appeal to the Purian interest and it has to go against community standards and the way that it's offensively portraying these acts. Yeah. So it's got to be sexual and it's got to be offensive in the way that it's sexual. And then the third part is it has to be lacking of any literary, artistic, political, or scientific value called the LAPS test, L-A-P-S, literary, artistic, political, scientific. And so the, the simple strategy of the other side is they took the Miller test as if it was three separate tests, three separate pathways to being qualified as obscene. If it's A, appeals to the Korean interest, or B, goes against community standards, or C, lacking any of the literary, artistic, political, scientific benefit. And that was their simple strategy. Make it seem like this bill says you can't do any of these three on their own. But to really pass the Miller test and be defined as obscene on current jurisprudence, it has to pass all three. Yeah, yeah. And and that's why, yeah, anybody who thinks that you could pass a law making it illegal to display um, Michelangelo's David sculpture, that, that, that any court in this country would say, yes, that depiction lacks any serious artistic value. It's, it's just- Correct. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it's it's inconceivable that you could find a, a court that would agree with that. Well, um, since we kind of brought up um, the uh, educational uh, lobby, uh, I want to talk about uh, two bills in particular um, that were among these five bills that dealt specifically with um, institutions of libraries and public schools. 
So in the House, um, State Representative John Hansen introduced House Bill 1163, which uh, prohibited the dissemination of obscene materials to a minor in a public library or school library. Uh, and in the Senate, we saw another uh, bill, Senate Bill 193, introduced by Senator Jessica Castleberry. And this bill would have simply required school boards to adopt a policy on allowing instructional materials to be reviewed in advance by parents and to have a policy whereby those parents could file complaints on any materials that they believed are harmful to their children. Um, can you just comment a little bit about these bills and explain what happened to them in the legislative process? Yeah, so first of all, just to simplify, let's call the first one that you mentioned from Representative Hansen, that's the library bill. And the second one, we'll call it the curriculum bill, just to keep things easy. Yeah. So the first library bill that said, hey, libraries need to have a policy to make sure that explicit materials isn't given to minors. And then it also said that they need to have a, a review process where somebody, if they find something that they believe is obscene or explicit, that there's a process they can go through to subject it for review. And then the library has to have criteria for whether or not they keep the book or materials or toss it or donate it or whatever. Yeah. So Bill went to committee. And what we saw this year is, again, a different strategy by our opponents is if you repeat the phrase, we already have a policy enough times, it doesn't matter what the policy is, that policy will be allowed to stand instead of the legislation that's being introduced. It's essentially what we saw. We have a policy, we have a policy, we have a policy. No discussion of whether or not it's working, no, if it's good enough, if it does what this bill actually says, just if a policy exists and enough people say that a policy of some sort exists, the legislators will say, okay, well, then we don't need a bill. Yeah. Oversimplifying, but that's essentially what happened. Yeah. Similar, uh, the, the curriculum bill. Yeah, no, I, I had, uh, I had, I think you've summarized it perfectly, and it was striking to me that uh, in one of these hearings in particular, there were a whole slew of parents who had taken the time to come to Peer, and they were there in person talking about, and they brought the materials with them that they found in their school library or that were being used in the curriculum of their schools and, and were presenting these materials to the committee. And so the committee had these materials in their hands um, and the parents were saying, we've got a problem here. This is what our children are having access to. And yet when the public school lobbyists come to the microphone, they just say, well, we, we have a policy to deal with this. We have a policy to deal with this. And just like you said, it, it, it was striking to me that there, there didn't seem to be many legislators who were willing to make the obvious point that maybe something is not working with your current policies if these materials are still getting into the hands of students. So Anyway, we'll we'll come back to the uh, the public school uh, issue a little later on in our discussion. But um, I want to touch on um, another bill that was very intriguing to me. Um, this is uh, Senate Bill One Ninety Two, uh, also sponsored by uh, Senator Jessica Castleberry. So this is her second bill uh, dealing with obscenity, and this one was uh, trying to address the issue of minors uh, accessing obscene materials on the internet. Uh, which is clearly a big problem these days. So can you explain specifically what this bill proposed to do and how far it progressed in the legislature? Yeah. So we'll get to simplify, we'll call this one the age verification bill. So a version of the age verification bill has passed in Tennessee. 
And that's, I believe, where Senator Castleberry got the idea. It's because she saw somebody's finally making progress here. I'm going to try something similar. Yeah. Since the later session, we saw that another state, uh, Utah, has actually done the same thing. So now we have two states that have passed some version of an age verification bill. So what this bill basically says is that you need an actual process, not just to check the box, to verify that the person is of age if you're going to host a website with explicit obscene material. So, for example, right now, if you or I go on a website and we try to order a box of cigars, you know, we go to buyacigar.com or whatever website you pick. As soon as we load that page, a little box is probably going to pop up and say, hey, are you 21? You and I are going to click yeah. yes, and they will allow us to order our box of cigars. Well, that's exactly what's happening on these obscene sites as well. And some of them don't even have that. Yeah. But what the bill says is you can't just have a little checkbox and say, hey, are you 21 or hey, are you 18? You have to have a way to verify. And if you don't and you're found that you've given material to kids through your website, then you're liable for X, Y, Z outlined in the bill. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's really great now that we have two other states that have done this. And so, uh, you know, hopefully we will uh, be able to revisit this issue uh, in South Dakota. Um, one last bill that I don't want to miss uh, in our discussion here is House Bill 1125. And this one was uh, filed by Representative Scott Odenbach, uh, represents uh, the Spearfish area. And this bill was focused specifically on this phenomenon of children being invited to attend so-called drag shows, which uh, was exactly uh, the case that you alluded to earlier that happened in uh, Brookings, um, I believe, last year. So uh, tell tell a little bit to our listeners about this bill and, and how it ended up in the session. Yeah, so the story of Representative Oudbach's bill is much shorter than Representative Carr because it died in the first committee. Um, I know they were both working on it behind the scenes before session, both actually went to the same committee. The committee chose to pass Representative Cars, not Representative Odenbach's, and that was kind of the end of the story. Mm -hmm. um, we believe that Representative Carr had better language, and so that's why we were, you know, after committee, able to help him through the rest of the process. We were hoping for the governor's desk, but again, we saw that committee kill it. Yeah. Okay. So, so with that, that's kind of uh, you know we kind of given, you know, maybe a very shallow, uh, admittedly, overview of all five of these bills. Um, so now just to kind of dig a little bit deeper into the dynamics of the this issue as the legislature considered it, um, these bills did meet with some significant uh, opposition, um, not, I would argue, from the grassroots, but from, you know, sort of uh, 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 inside uh, lobbyists, I would say, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, the ACLU uh, testified against uh, most of these bills, uh, and nobody is particularly surprised by that. Uh, you know, I think people look at that and just say, well, that's the ACLU being the ACLU. But I, met, I bet many South Dakotans would be surprised that lobbyists representing public school boards and public school administrators were among the loudest opponents of some of these bills. Um, can you just share a little bit with our listeners about just how hard public school lobbyists worked to kill these bills? Yeah, I mean, they were our primary opponent. You know, when you brought up that the ACLU opposed it, um, you know, you and I were talking about this the other day, it was almost one of those Oh, yeah, I forgot that they were there, too, feelings. Yeah. Because they were such a small part of the opposition. You know, 
not to throw them under the bus, but it was almost forgettable. It's like, if you've got 10 people on from one group and one from another, it's pretty clear that, yeah, the public school and all the different agencies or groups, coalitions associated with them, they were the ones fighting the hardest against this. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's not super surprising if you just look at, you know, hey, if you as Michael Pauly have a job to do, do you want your bosses passing more or less rules on your work? Yeah. Okay. I can understand why somebody would say always our default option is less rules. I get it. But when you really look at the issue and when you really look at the legislation that's being proposed, these rules are basic that we were talking about. We're talking about obscene material. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that, came to my mind as I listened to some of these committee hearings is that these same lobbyists representing public school interests are also the same lobbyists who diligently work to oppose any kind of legislation that expands parental options in education. So they, for example, they vigorously opposed the uh, reform of our homeschool laws to make homeschooling uh, easier in South Dakota. They vigorously opposed um, uh, two different bills in this past legislative session to expand educational choice. And it it just struck me that if, if I were in their shoes, I'd be asking, why is there such a demand from parents for more educational options other than the public schools. And I would be embracing reforms like this, you know, so as to, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, to sort of uh, uh, appear to the public like you're interested in cleaning up your act, in creating an environment that's actually safe for genuine learning. Um, But they they don't seem to be uh, interested in going down that pathway. So um, the... uh, you know, one of the things that um, really struck me is, uh, uh, you know, I think you might have alluded to this earlier, but uh, we heard one of the lobbyists for the public schools talking about um, how uh, even the topics of the debate team might be constrained, you know, by by these bills, as if a subject that the high school debate team is talking about would meet a definition of obscenity. I mean, it it was it was very strange, and and we saw another uh, lobbyist for the schools uh, suggesting that um, you know uh, he he alluded to the fact that there was once a time when uh, Elvis being on TV, gyrating on TV, was considered offensive by people, and so you yep. know he he suggested that oh pretty soon we'll be seeing uh, certain kinds of dance moves or whatever uh, uh, you know band of legislation like this uh, comes to pass. I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So first of all, with the, the Elvis analogy that we saw, again, they were taking one part of the Miller test and asking a lot of questions about it. That The the second one, it violates community standards. <clears throat> I'll take that as its own. If we pass a law that says nobody's allowed to do anything that violates community standards, I think we'd all be in agreement that, okay, what on earth does that even mean? Yeah. Right? If yeah. you just that one sentence as a law, that'd probably be pretty confusing. Courts could do literally anything or nothing with that. And so, again, that was kind of their strategy of look at the different pieces and present it as if they each stand alone, but they don't. Yeah. And as far as public school opposing other educational choice options, I think on a, for starters, again, kind of like we talked about earlier with the others, as far as human nature, they believe it's their role to educate all the kids. So if 
you know, you as Michael Polly, you have been given X job to do. And then your boss comes up and says, also, we're going to hire this other person to do this other thing. That's really essentially what you're doing. Also, your first reaction would probably be, Hey, come on. That's what I'm supposed to do. Why would you hire this other dude? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. at a base level, again, I kind of get where they're coming from, but when you actually, again, add the facts and what's going on, it's not the school's responsibility to educate all of the children in South Dakota. It's their responsibility to provide a free and public option. We're going to, just for those of us listening on our our, our radio listeners, we have come to the end of our time here, uh, but we are going to continue the discussion with Norman Woods from the Family Heritage Alliance. So you can get the uh, whole discussion by visiting our website at sdcatholicconference.org. So until next time, live well. All right. And for our uh, lucky podcast subscribers, uh, we'll just continue on here with the discussion. Yes, off we go. So I want to I want to dig deeper into this, um, you know, this whole element of uh, the the Miller test and how we define obscenity. Um, So, uh, you know, what you were just commenting on, uh, Norman, is this part of the Miller test that says, uh, and I think I'm quoting here, the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the content appealed to a prurient interest. And the argument came up repeatedly during the hearings. How do we determine what that contemporary standard is? And how do we discern what the average person thinks? And again, this became kind of a mantra during the hearings. Not everyone agrees about what is acceptable. So therefore the bill before you is unworkable and you should just vote it down. And it really struck me um, after the session was over and I was reflecting on these hearings that this argument ends up amounting to a, a kind of a nihilism. We be, and what I mean by that is this, is that they, they start off from the premise that we can't all agree on what obscenity is, so let's just ignore it. But the net result of doing that is not that you have no standards. Instead, the result is that you do have a standard, but it's just the standard of the lowest common denominator. In other words, the the most depraved segment of society, if you will, uh, ends up sort of setting the standard for what is acceptable and the rest of society, um, which may be very unhappy about it, is just sort of forced to live with it. You know, I, I just kind of want your thoughts on this. What, what are the consequences of the overall health of our society when we kind of always let the lowest common denominator uh, guide our cultural standards. Yeah. So I think one thing to keep in mind uh, runs through my head all the time. Whenever we see, you know, political battles like this, that you you scratch your head at, okay, why are people fighting for the ability to have obscene performances on state property? And maybe they weren't wanting obscene performances there, but from the, the perspective of the left, We have to remember that any regulation on total freedom is a total regulation of your freedom. Mm. Any regulation or any prohibition of total freedom is a total prohibition of freedom. Yeah. Because again, their perspective, there shouldn't be any rules. Nobody else should put any rules on me. Yeah. So that's kind of their gut. Again, not putting this on each of the individual lobbyists. I don't know their political worldview in depth we're talking more in general the left who says never any rules never any standards but if we look at the miller test 
know, you mentioned that it was fairly broad. And people there at the Capitol mentioned that things like who defines if this is against community standards, who defines if this is appealing to the prurian interest. Well, the courts do. Yeah. There's a reason that it's written that way. Um, there was a, one of the famous quotes about pornography, I believe it was Scalia. He said, it's really hard to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. That's why it's written so broad. Because if you were to sit down and define the difference between the, the statue of David and a picture of a naked pinup girl, if you were to write in code, in legal words, how would you define the difference between those two? Yeah. When you get down to the nuts and bolts, it'd probably be kind of hard to define the difference. Yeah, yeah. But you put both of them before a court with the standards like, hey, which one of them is against community standards to show a little kid? Yeah. It's pretty So that's why it's written a little bit more broad, because it's appealing to the judgment of the judges. Yeah. Is this offensive to mostly everybody? Is yeah. this appealing to a sexual desire? in most everybody's definition and yeah. is this lacking in really any artistic or scientific benefit yeah. judges use your judgment is this meant to be super sexual and pushing the line or is this a drama club looking through a textbook that includes statues that don't have clothes on that obviously has literary and artistic benefit yeah yeah it it, it almost seems to me like in the debate on this subject that there's this kind of false binary put before us where we either have to have a situation of, uh, you know, basically cultural anarchy in this whole area where there's no rules, there's no standards, there's no objective uh, standards of, of decency that society can enforce. Uh, the, so you, you can either have that or you can have uh, life under the Taliban, you know, where where uh, you know the statue of David is smashed and women are forced to wear uh, head coverings if they go out in public. You know, it's it's like this false um, uh, dichotomy where they say you can either have this or this, and they reject any possibility that reasonable people, using their gifts of discernment, using um, their perceptions of what will advance the common good could come up with a, um, you know, a, a reasonable middle ground. It's, uh, it's, it's really remarkable that they kind of put this false dichotomy in front of us. So, um, you know, Norman, one other thing I wanted to uh, talk about is uh, during the hearing on the bills that sought to regulate um, library content, um, as I mentioned before, the, the bill's sponsors and the parents submitted examples of the obscene content that had been found in libraries that their children uh, had been able to access. And the point was made by some of them that if we read this material out loud during this committee hearing, you, Mr. Chairman, would gavel us out of order because, you know, you would tell us that this is offensive. Stop it. You can't say those words. Uh, but but you know, here they are in the library books. And so I, I just thought I had this amusing thought that, you know, for those people who are wondering, how do we define what a community standard is? Maybe that's the community standard is that if the material couldn't be read out loud in a committee hearing room of the South Dakota legislature, or if you couldn't put it on a large display screen in a hearing room of the legislature, 
could we say then that that violates community standards? Any any thoughts on that? So it's kind of like you said, an amusing thought. Um, I don't know if I'd go quite that far because I think there are plenty of things that have literary or artistic benefit that I would never bring to a committee room. Yeah. Right. Even talking about, you know, there's a whole host of topics that you and I could talk about privately. Right. Maybe, maybe even in the presence of young kids, if done properly, you know, reproductive system and how that applies to marriage. Yeah. Yeah. I would never want to be talking about that in a committee hearing. Yeah. But there is a place to appropriately write about it, talk to kids about it. So I get where you're going and that's close. But I don't yeah. know if I'd go that far. Yeah. Well, and 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 to yeah, to make a argument against my own point is that there there were certain topics, you know, I the one that just kind of jumps to mind right now would be um very difficult historical topics like uh slavery or the Holocaust or whatever, where um, you know, some of the images that depict darker aspects of our history would be mm-hmm very disturbing and and offensive um but uh but they're in certain context in an appropriate context um very you, needed you, yeah you you need to be able to to stare uh evil in the face if for no other reason um you know to to learn how to avoid it in the future so um, right yeah but it uh it, it was, uh, you know, I'll just share uh, one little anecdote, and I, I think you may have been um, in the hearing uh, when this uh, anecdote was shared, but the executive director of the School Administrators Association for South Dakota, uh, I won't name his name because it's really not relevant for this discussion, uh, but he, he, he referenced his history as an elementary school principal. And he said that uh, during his time as elementary school principal, he could recall one occasion where uh, a parent objected to a book, and it was actually a book that was in a second grade classroom library. And he said that um, the book was um, about this boy who has this problem with um uh, I'll use the polite expression, uh, passing gas. Uh, you know, <laughs> the subject of the book was flatulence. And uh, and so, uh, but before he went to describe the content of this book, uh, he asked the chairman, Mr. Chairman, is it okay if I use this word? And, you know, we'll call it the uh, the F word, but not 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 the other F word, but the, uh, the, the F word that has to do with passing gas. And he says, may I use this word in, in committee? And the chairman of the committee says, no, you may not. And he was rather humorless about it. He just he just said, no, no, I'm not going to let you uh, use that word in your testimony before the committee. Um, and, and again, that just sort of struck me as, as another uh, example about how um, we, we seem to be living with some kind of cognitive dissonance on this issue where where we uh, we we have a, again a legislative committee where uh, the the chairman isn't even going to allow a vulgar word uh, to be used in the hearing, but yet for some reason we're defending the proposition that second graders um, you know should be reading books like this. And I'm not saying that a book like that rises to the definition uh, rises to the level of obscenity, but I think we could argue that it certainly rises to the level of bad taste that maybe shouldn't be subsidized by taxpayers but uh anyway sure. well um just uh 
you know, maybe to wrap up our discussion here, um, looking forward to 2024 and uh, and beyond, uh, where do you see this issue going? Do you expect that some of these bills that were uh, debated on in 2023 will come back again? Yeah, so kind of two different aspects of, you know, what's next. If you look at next year or the next two years, I definitely think we'll see this issue come back. With this exact legislation, these exact five bills, maybe not. You know, maybe some of the schools work really hard on taking obscene content out of their libraries, or maybe the Board of Regents and all the institutions put in some really good policies. You know, so maybe not all the exact same bills, but I think the topic is definitely coming back because the issue isn't going away. Yeah. And if we even broader, you know, we talk about, you know, the community standards, what we should and shouldn't be doing. Eventually, again, this is getting super big picture, but to maintain freedom in a free society, we have to adhere to the unenforceable. Yeah. You're either governed within or governed from without. So yeah, the law can set a baseline, the really obscene stuff. But eventually for us to maintain a free society, to be capable of governing ourselves, we've got to be able to sit down, sit at the table and say, okay, what are we going to show to kids? Yeah. The law says, here's the, the baseline of, okay, you can't do at least this. What are we as a society going to sit down and set as our standards? What should we be doing? Yeah. yeah. Not just what am I allowed to do? We should be asking, what should we be doing? Yeah. Very good. Very good thoughts. And I, I've, I've often thought, um, you know, getting back to what I was talking about before, about this kind of false um, binary that's put before us where, you know, you can either have total moral anarchy or, you know, a Taliban-like regime, you know, when it comes to uh, these issues, um, you know, I would argue that the survival of the First Amendment um, is actually strengthened, you know, by having some common sense uh, standards of decency, because I think there's, I think there's a broad consensus in our culture today about the need to protect political speech, you know, the exchange of political ideas. Um, but, you know, the Supreme Court has, as as we've talked about earlier in the program, um, the Supreme Court has always validated at least the concept that obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. That was never the intention of the First Amendment was to yep. protect obscenity. And so with that principle, in essence, kind of fixed in law, what remains for us now is to develop that consensus as a as a people about what what is obscenity how how do we define it and uh and so i think these bills um that were debated in 2023 um helped start that conversation and uh i think it i think it will be continued in 2024 so, well, great. Well, that is all the time that we have for our uh, podcast today. Um, if you are uh, not familiar with the work of the Family Heritage Alliance, um, you can check them out online at familyheritagealliance.org. Again, that's familyheritagealliance.org. Uh, and as always, if you um, want to uh, uh, forward this podcast uh, to uh, folks that you know, send a link. Uh, that's available at sdcatholicconference.org. Norman, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, Michael. It's always a joy. All right. And for all our listeners, until next time, live well. Live well.